This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Marcia Lane McGee. She is the author of a book on Ave Maria Press called Fat Luther Slim Pickens. And I have to tell you, this is not the kind of title that I normally see come across. Uh, the content is fantastic. The title is engaging. <laughs> um, before we get into the rest of your bio, Marcia, just uh, unpack for us the, the levels of nuance that exist here in this title. Um, well, the first thing that um, grabs you is the fat Luther. Um, every person's like Martin Luther. And, but really fat Luther refers to Luther Vandross, who was a, a soul R&B singer in the eighties and nineties. Uh, and that's what he reached ahead of his fame. He didn't do it long before that. And there is a debate that's not a debate among black people which Luther is the better Luther? Is it fat Luther or skinny Luther? And the answer is a resounding fat Luther. He was the best Luther. But at some point in the 90s, he lost a bunch of weight. And everyone was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We liked you as you were. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of where we are. And the Slim Pickens are what uh, myself and my co-author uh, feel that we're offered not only as women, but as Black women and Black Catholics. Like, we kind of get what's left and we kind of get into that in a little bit mm -hmm. in the book. Um, and, and it's, I think it's a very joyful, uh, book and story and <laughs> things like that. So you've got a couple of different bios that you can find by going to various websites that you're involved with. Uh, and, and I had a couple in mind and then I got to the one on Femme Catholic and, and it's just, I have to read it in its entirety because I think it gives a good picture of the, the remainder of our conversation today. Marcia Lane McGee is the co-author of Fat Luther Slim Pickens. She's a speaker. Uh, she's slightly stressed out grad student and the co-host of Plaid Skirts and Black, Basic Black Podcast. She's a Chicago native and eldest sibling. She refuses to pull any punches, which we're going to enjoy here in this conversation today, and doesn't easily give in to can't. Uh, she has a close and complicated relationship with feedback. She's an aspiring joy guru. Uh, she fully believes in dancing in your underwear in your own home, of course, uh, and that it will heal just about any ill. Marcy is also first a, a first mom, an executive uh, board member for both New Wave Feminists and Catholics United for Black Lives, and uh, and all three have served to strengthen her resolve in getting women and children what they need for health and wholeness, especially in a post-role world. And of course, that's uh, a really uh, telling um, bio. So if you wrote that, well done. If you had someone else, they must know you real well uh, to put that together. <laughs> I had help. I had help. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, um, but thank you. Thank you. I will pass along to my friend who helped me. <laughs> write it. I was like, this is a lot of things to put in there. And she's like, you know, we're going to put them all in there. You know, um, one thing has changed though. I am no longer, I no longer serve on the board of new way feminist. Okay. So that that's new. Um, that as of yesterday, uh, so oh, that's but yeah, I'm still a stressed new. out grad student. Um, uh, and yeah. so I'm, I'm still everything that, um, <laughs> that says. Yeah. So, um, you go into this a little bit in, in the book, about the the term, and it, it comes up uh, not only here in the book, but it comes up on social media. You see it uh, 
every so often you'll see the term black Catholic. And I want to talk about this term because um, I think there is a movement among a, a number of people to try and say, to, not not to get rid of of diversity, but to say, let's get rid of the the modifiers at the beginning. Like I'm not a I'm not a American Catholic. I'm not a a conservative Catholic or a faithful Catholic or a liberal Catholic. I'm Catholic, and yet I think that there is still something very important about this distinction of black Catholic. And I wonder if you could help us to understand um, why the term got adopted and what what makes black Catholicism kind of distinct in a way that these other forms of adding an adjective in the front does not. Right. Oh, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Um, so the the thing is, with when we say black Catholic, that is, that does, that's not about color it's about culture mm-hmm. right so it is no it's really no different than being like i'm irish catholic i'm american catholic um this is my dominant defining culture right when you look at me like i'm i'm a very much a black woman when you look at me and my blackness informs my spirituality and informs my catholicism those traditions that are passed down from family from church from all of it that's what makes up my black catholicness um a lot of it has to do with, we talked about this a little bit in the book about the origins of the black church, right? How most enslaved people in the time that they were enslaved weren't allowed to worship or they could worship with other white people at the time. And that even the same even goes for black and white Catholics, right? We couldn't worship together. We weren't allowed to. Um, Augustus Sultan got, yeah. um, he was the, he's considered like the first black priest that was 1890 there are black people long before that being catholic does that make sense and so what with that we've created this culture around the our joy about sharing the gospel there are four tenets of black spirituality that go into it and that's it's joyful it's holistic it's communal um and there's a fourth one (laughs) for some reason it's escaping me because of course it is um and that all goes into our our, our black Catholic culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that with everything that there does need to be that qualifier, it doesn't make me less Catholic or more Catholic to be black Catholic. It just helps define where my spirituality is and where some of my sensitivities lie. Yeah. Um, like it's so different than being Irish Catholic. If someone says I'm Irish Catholic, pe- people kind of understand. I mean, I'm from Chicago. If you say you're Irish Catholic, people understand. If you're Polish Catholic, they understand. It's Chicago. There's a lot of Irish people. There's a lot of Polish people, yeah. right? And we get that. You say you're American Catholic. That's very different from European Catholic. It just kind of help, kind of helped you understand me and where I'm coming from in a spiritual place. You you bring up uh, Father Augustus Tolton. And and I think that that's a really important one to bring up specifically because of the the tendency in in various cultures to uh, specifically within Catholicism to ignore certain tenets of our Catholic belief when it comes to how we have to relate to other people. So, for instance, um, we have the, the the scripture that there's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. You know that, that all are one in Christ. Uh, and yet you get someone like Father Augustus Sultan, who no seminary in the U.S. would take him. And he had to be taken uh, by a missionary order and sent to seminary in Rome uh, to be able even to be ordained a priest, to even to be able to study to be a priest. And you have a similar thing with 
uh, with um, Martin de Porres, who wanted to be uh, a Dominican. And the only way for him to do that was uh, through extraordinary effort of his brothers, rather than the culture just allowing that to happen. Uh, and I think that here we're getting to the second part of the title of Slim Pickings. Um, we we all too often are guilty of ignoring certain tenets of our faith in favor of the prevailing culture that ends up in nothing less than it, uh, repression and oppression. So I think it would be easy to say, oh, well, look how far we've come. And yet we look at the number of, of black seminarians here in the United States, and we see still just uh, immense immense things that have to be overcome in order for uh, African-American men to be able to even to, to make it all the way through seminary, even if they've entered into it. So what are, how do we maybe open our eyes to see more clearly uh, the deficiencies that we currently have so that we can begin to walk towards reconciliation and walk towards a place that's more in keeping with what our faith holds? Well, I just actually had this conversation with, um, well, gosh, within this last um, couple of days, but having this conversation with people about being willing to help someone carry their load, like be willing to help someone carry their water. Because if we want to really have our eyes open to what the struggle is, we have to be willing to engage in that struggle, right? Um, a lot of people's eyes weren't open to discrimination and the fact that, you know, I, I grew up in the nineties. I was a whole nineties kids. I don't know if you knew this, but racism was over in the nineties, right? Like no one that didn't happen. And all of our TV shows were like the United colors of Benetton. And when a lot of people in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd were like, Whoa, mm -hmm. I didn't know. You know what I mean? The world has changed. And I was like, no, no, no. And I think that people were willing to keep their eyes open to what deficiencies they had because for the first time, well, for the first time for, for many, they were willing to share that struggle, right? They were willing to put themselves in other people's shoes who don't have that same struggle. And when you are walking with someone and you're seeing what they're walking with and what they're walking through, you see it all the time. It's almost like have you ever, I'm sure it happens. It's the new car effect. Yeah. When you buy a new car, right? And you see your car and then like right away, you see your car on the road all the time and you've never seen that car before, right? You're like, I just got this car and everyone has this car. It's because you're in tune to it, right. because you know about it. You can open your eyes to deficiencies if you choose, you know, to engage with them. Mm -hmm. Now you are a convert to the Catholic faith, but you, you come from a Pentecostal background. Uh, you bring that joy and energy with yes. you into Catholicism. Uh, I'm I'm curious uh, because if we look around, you know, in urban areas, we'll we'll have a parish or two that will be Saint Peter uh, Peter Claver Church, right? You'll have some church that's named after an African uh, or an African American uh, African saint, and you'll have uh, a a congregation that is uh, either interracial or predominantly black, but it seems to be kind of peppered here and there. My own parish, I think we've got three African families, African-American families in in our parish, in a parish of 
a couple thousand families, right? So with that, with that, um, the lack of diversity, you coming into the faith, what have you found as the the hangups, the thing, the way, the ways that we're maybe failing in evangelization, the ways that uh, that one family generation doesn't stay in the faith, whatever those those factors are that push against diversity. What do you see as maybe the primary things going on these days? I don't know if you want me to answer I this do. question, Come, but I will. I want I <laughs> I legitimately want you to answer it. Well, <laughs> well, here's the thing. It goes beyond skin color and culture. Everyone's leaving the faith, right? There is like this heartbreaking, seemingly end of Christendom in a lot of places, right? It's just, oh my gosh, like it is breaking my heart. And the thing that breaks my heart most is that it is 100% preventable. And because a lot of the times there is a disconnect between what Christ teaches and what they see from the church, Mm -hmm. the people of God and the actual, what they see as church. And I think that disconnect is allowing people to walk away and I see it specifically in the black community because it's very difficult that I still have only one time since 2020. And I think only twice in my life have ever heard a priest preach about racism, right? We do you know what I mean? I've ever heard a priest um, preach about migrant families and, you know, and things that people coming over the border and the hardships that people face. It's not that they don't preach about hardship, right? But I don't hear a lot of homilies that speak to me that say, I see you and I see your specific struggle, right? And that, hey, we accept some of the blame for this and we need to overcome it as a church. And for anyone who is trying to keep this faith and claim it as their own, if anyone is understanding what Jesus stood for and who he was, and they're not seeing that being mirrored anywhere else that's saying that they're Jesus, it's hard to stay there. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that there is that disconnect and that's across the board. I know so many young people who are like, I can be a better person without church. And I was like, Oh, that is not true. <laughs> And here's the thing. They're not correct. They're not right, but they're not wrong either. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's not, it's not correct. I don't know anyone who's going to be a better person without the Eucharist. Like, you know, and maybe that's just me being me and how much I love Jesus. But um, the fact that they think they can and the fact that we let it get this far, yeah. that's the problem. And it doesn't, it has nothing to do with race or culture or anything. It's that's where we are. Paul uses the language of being ambassadors for Christ uh, in Scripture, and he talks about we are ministers. Uh, we all who are disciples, we are ministers of reconciliation, and uh, a frustration, a struggle that I have experienced is is seeing how often we lay aside those mandates for things that feel more culturally appropriate. Um, we want to be ambassadors for 
uh, for other things, right? For, for other preferences or other ideals. And sometimes we set aside reconciliation in favor of status quo. Uh, we set aside uh, pursuit of justice in favor of uh, making making our own lives just a little bit less contentious, uh, and so we have this picture of of being a Christian and of of being a disciple of Christ as kind of this pastoral scene, you know, the, the Psalm 23, he leads me by silent waters. It's this nice, I'm going to lay down by quiet streams and my soul is going to be refreshed and it's going to be fed. Uh, and, and not the picture that we get from Jesus of uh, being put out of the synagogues and not planning on what we're going to say because the Spirit's going to give us the words to say in those moments of conflict, that we, we avoid conflict uh, at Sometimes it, I think at all costs, instead of saying, this is what's right and what's just, and so here I stand um, because this is I'm Christ's body in this moment. I have to stand up in this moment because this is what Christ would do. And it's difficult, and it's painful, and it's, it's uncomfortable even to call other people to it, but I think that it's the thing that is demanded of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. I um I remind people often and they don't like it when I say the Bible calls us to be peacemakers not peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't and I some people don't, they're like what? It's fine. And I go no no. Peacekeeping keeps you comfortable, right? It a lot it doesn't allow you to do the work. Um peacemaking is about justice. And it involves work, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think that reminding that reminder of we are called to be peacemakers. And when you're making something, you're laboring for it. And But when you're keeping something, you really don't have to do anything, right? You just kind of say, oh, we're, we're, let me just keep the peace here. Let me make myself comfortable and maybe the other people comfortable who I'm comfortable with. And it doesn't we're not able to move forward and do any change. Well, and, and at a peacekeeping place, uh, I, it, it avoids all conflict, right? The, yes. the, the peacekeeper is saying, oh, there's conflict. I have to squash that. I have to push it down because that's disrupting the peace. Mm-hmm. Whereas a peacemaker recognizes the peace and acts as an intermediary and finds yes. a way to resolve the conflict, not just suppress the conflict. Yes. So for the person who hears this call and says, that's all well and good, but how uh, I have been maybe a peacekeeper or around peacekeepers for so long that I don't even feel comfortable or know how to approach conflict in a way that I could be a peacemaker. How does someone take baby steps into this revolutionary minister of reconciliation territory? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, I am, I'm a very much a go-getter person. So I was like, jump right in. But you're right. If someone needs to take baby steps from being a peacekeeper to a peacemaker, I think sometimes it's important to ask the question why, right? If you are faced with a conflict and then if you just ask why it's happening, instead of being like, how can we compromise right away? Or how can we um, make everyone more comfortable right away? 
I think that being faced with that, that's non-confrontational, right? If you say, hey, why? Like I used to be a preschool teacher and kids would be arguing and instead of immediately separating them without, I say, hey, what's going on? Do you know, and that's really important. I used to, same thing when I was running a boy's home. Um, I say, what's going on? And that gives them a chance to calm down and also reflect. And then you get a better way to help everyone else achieve a goal. And I think instead of saying, instead of immediately trying to make someone comfortable without understanding, I think seeking understanding. Just like uh, <laughs> for your St. Francis, it's better to yeah. to understand than to work to be understood. Um, yeah. Like, just came up with that. I'm so smart and amazing. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that's it. Just asking why. Um, seeking to understand a conflict without making judgment is a really easy mm-hmm. way to make a step towards being a peacemaker and not a peacekeeper. Something else that I think gets lost in the um, uh, in the narrative sometimes is we are fed this narrative that uh, as the disciple of Jesus Christ that that we are the uh, the rescuer right we're the ones who are following Jesus who are going to come in and solve the problem and we're going to fix it and all I have to do is figure out what's going on and I as the minister of reconciliation I can come in and I can solve it all. Um, and because we are on the outside of it, because we have been so uncomfortable with being peacemakers and have been peacekeepers for so long, uh, I think that we sometimes forget that our place might be in the back of the room for a while uh, and letting, making space for other people in the front of the room who are uh, who have lived with the conflict a little bit longer and maybe understand it a little bit better. Uh, and to to seek to understand by listening and sitting down. Mm-hmm. There's this great book. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called um, The Power of Ted. Um, have you ever heard of that? It's about the I've empowerment not. dynamic. Okay. And it's, it's crazy because I wasn't even, I've been thinking about it a lot and I was like, I need to reread that book um, because things have been going on and there's the, the, it's a triangle, right? The empowerment dynamic. And it's like the, um, it talks about the conflict and the creator and like all these things and how you should deal with it. And then the reverse of that is the dreaded drama triangle or whatever. And the, they got the worst person, but the one point of conflict is the rescuer, right? The person who tries to go in and fix it actually makes it so much worse without Mm -hmm. helping the other people solve their problems. And when you said that, I go, oh my gosh, this is, this is, I need, this is just confirmation. I need to reread this book. So, but it's a really good, so you're, you're absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. So as, as a person who is maybe recognizing these dynamics. And you mentioned in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot of people who began to see things that they had not previously seen. Um, I want to bring this back into uh, Catholicism and into our faith. Uh, as How, how it, does our Catholicism make that approach different than what we see uh, the rest of our society doing? Wait, please say that one more time. What exactly? Sure. I need to make sure I understand the question. So, how does how does the lens of our Catholicism help us see this specific issue, this issue of reconciliation, racial reconciliation, uh, in a, in a different light than uh, the general populace might see it in? Mm-hmm. 
What difference does our Catholicism make in racial reconciliation? Well, um, I think this, okay, that's what I thought you were asking. And I think it's a difficult question to answer. I think it would be an easy answer to say, oh, we should make sure that we're, you know, greeting the stranger and um, going to what we learn. But I, th- I think that we haven't been applying Catholicism to racism very much in the church. I think that we can learn a lot. I think the church can learn from the world at this point, <laughs> um, even though, even though there's, there are so, there's so much rich education and documentation in the church about how to deal with racism, how to handle in racial justice. Um, the document from 1979, brothers and sisters to us, um, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of what we've seen and heard. Um, and that was written by all the black bishops, but um, we're not applying a lot of that. And so right. I don't, I can't, I can't, um, I can't put my mind around, like, I know it's very, very Catholic to want racial justice. Like, I know that, right? Yeah. But I haven't, I haven't, I can't tell you where I've seen that commonly in practice. So I, I don't know, even know how to answer that question, except what racism is a sin. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. should know that. <laughs> like, uh, and- and I think to some extent you answered it there with the, the fact that we do have statements that have been made that you just mentioned a couple of documents that I wonder if 90% of Catholics have heard, even heard of and even know they exist and even know that the church has weighed in on this topic in the United States, much less worldwide. Yeah, and I, I actually just introduced a few people to those documents uh, a couple of months ago. And they're like, wait, those exist. And I was like, yes, very much. So I did a presentation with teenagers about racial justice and kind of talking about it back in 2021 um, at NCYC with my co-host Shannon. And I read something from brothers and sisters to us and talking about racism and racism being a sin and things like that. And then I said to them all, oh, I'm like, there are parents there and teens there. And I was like, so the church came out with a statement that go, can someone tell me when this was written? And so many hands went up. They're like, yeah, in 2020, and it's about time. And I go, no, this document is technically older than me by a few months, right? Like, I was yeah. like, this document came out over 40 years ago. And it blew their mind to know that the church had a stance on racism, like an official stance. And I was like, this is information we need to get out there. We need to tell people, like, it is very Catholic to, like, we, we are a people of social justice, Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we should be doing this. So you're right. Just the understanding, and they have the access to them, but they don't really know that they have the access to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking today with Marcia Lane McGee. She's the co-author of Fat Luther Slim Pickings, a Black Catholic celebration of faith, tradition, and diversity. Available on Ave Maria Press. There's so much more to this conversation. Right after this. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads. The handle is at step outside the walls and don't go anywhere because there's so much more to come right after this break. You're listening to outside the walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Marcia Lane McGee. Uh, she is the co-author of the book, uh, Fat Luther, Slim Pickens, A Black Catholic Celebration of Faith, Tradition, and Diversity. It's available on Ave Maria Press. Oh, we didn't get too much in the, our conversation earlier to talk about the slim pickings. We did a little bit. Um, but I, I'm curious uh, if you could break out for us uh, what what you see. It, of course, obviously, they, we want them to go pick up the book. We want them to read it. Yes. Um, but in that, that topic of slim pickings, what do you see as the difficulty or the... Um, the leanness being offered to you as a black Catholic and as a black woman Catholic. Uh, and what do you see as potential solutions to that? Well, that's an easy question. I think that one of the huge things that is a, a slim picking um, is the lack of equity. Um, I think that when I see that, I mean that as Christians, as people who love Jesus and follow him, a huge thing that we do to bring people in is to meet them where they're at, right? Not expecting them to come to us. And I think as a Black Catholic, and especially as a Black Catholic woman, I am served as if I were a white Catholic woman. And what I mean by that is there are different, I have different needs. I have a different struggle. I have, um, I have a different sense of welcome in our mm -hmm. church that is definitely our home, Right. And I think that sometimes I get the same as everyone else, but I still get less than everyone else. I, mm. that's where we fall into that equality trap, right? It's like, well, I'm giving everyone the same things. And it's like, great, but I'm still falling short and I'm still falling behind. And I think those are the slim pickings, right? And recognizing that I used to be a preschool teacher, like I said before, um, and I've worked with kids forever, um, Reese boys for four years where it says sameness isn't fairness. Fairness is everyone getting what they need. And mm -hmm. I think that there's that inability to recognize that, that makes the picking so slim where I don't have access to the same things that other or access to the faith the same way that my white mm -hmm. counterparts do. And let's and, get into this a little bit because I, you worked in parish life. I worked in parish life. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a couple of different, I think, underlying issues with this this question of of equity. One is we have so programmed everything out. We have a program for that. Uh, you know, if you want to come into the Catholic Church, well, we have a program for that. Uh, you go to the classes from September to whatever, uh, and then you get to come into the church. Um, I was so blessed in that when I was coming into the church, uh, I was on staff at a, at a Protestant church, and my my priest recognized that I needed something different, uh, and so he did a private RCIA with my wife, um, where she would go into the nursery with the kids. The kids could play uh, in the middle of the week. Kids could play in the nursery, and he did a one on one RCIA with her. They had their RCIA class, um, and then for me, he had a couple of conversations, and then told me that I clapped out. Um, but, but, but there's this, 
this idea of, oh, well, we have a program for that, so I'm not going to pay attention to what it is that you actually need to help you enter into the place you need to be. And of course, I'm talking specifically about RCIA, but this is applicable to more than just that. Yes. Um, because it's difficult and it's hard to customize for every individual parishioner, specifically where you're in a, such a big parish, um, it's difficult to meet the needs of every individual person. And this is where, my friends, uh, the, the vocation of the laity and an active laity is essential. We cannot be bystanders and pew sitters and think that that's going to be sufficient for our Catholicism. Yeah. We all are called to do uh, the, the work of the Great Commission, to go out and make disciples, yes. baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And only when we each carry our weight, you talked about earlier sharing the load, only when we carry our own weight are we able to, to actually meet the needs of the, of the people in front of us and the people who come to us. Otherwise— People are going to fall through the cracks. People are going to receive less than they need. And it's going to be a poverty of some sort for the church, both because we need them. And if we aren't meeting those needs, then they're not coming. And a poverty for them because there's certain aspects of the the blessings of the gospel that they cannot receive because we're not acting. Amen. You got my soapbox. You yeah, got my no, soapbox. I, gosh, this is me all day. This is actually me as a youth minister, right? I yeah. would say like, hey, we are not, we're not meeting these needs. We're not meeting these kids where they are. Um, and I just think that's, it's so, so important. I think that you, we, we, we talked about the book, about in the book where without engaging black Catholics, like the church is losing a lot, right? But I think without, mm -hmm. and that, but that statement could be said about any group, right? Absolutely. It's specifically said about black Catholics because I'm a black Catholic who wrote a book about being black Catholic, right? right. <laughs> but like we're, we're missing out. And I think that, I mean, I think one of the things that we get to is in that, that saying like, this is just one part of it. Like this is applicable across the board, right? Like everyone should be able to have access to the faith the way as it, as it is, right? But that's not the reality of it. And we need to go out, like, leave the 99, y'all. I'm just saying, there's a whole book about how we're supposed to do this. Just like, and I mean the Bible. Right? <laughs> like, so, I, um, so I don't even remember what the original question was. But I'm like, I'm ready to get on this soapbox with you. Make room Come for on. me. <laughs> like, there, I, there is room. <laughs> well, and... And I, th I'm not sure where it came from, uh, but I, th it's I think present in the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church specifically in America. It may be elsewhere as well, but my experience is with the church here in America. Uh, there is this idea that we are spectators, right? Even in our idea of what it means to be active participants in the liturgy, uh, it's all centered around the uh, the performers and the spectators. So if I'm going to be we think if I'm going to be an active participant in the liturgy, I've got to be a lector or I've got to be in the choir or I've got to be doing some active thing in front of people. And then those who are sitting down somehow are less active. And of course, that's not what Vatican II is calling for at all. It's calling for an activity of intention and of, of our prayers being joined to the prayers of the Mass, not about who's got the microphone. Um, and so 
because this idea of being a spectator has so infected our idea of what it means to be a Catholic, it ends up creating the inequities that that we're talking about uh, in the other aspects of Catholicism, because we have our whole concept of what it means to be a disciple flipped on its head. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm like, yeah, we're having this great. Oh, I'm just listening to you now. Like, yes, yes. No. And, and you're right. And also, um, it's looking the part two has become mm-hmm. a bigger deal than it is. I think there's a lot of, of like on social media, like looking the part of the good Catholic. Right. And I was like, well, it's a part of the Catholic, like look like something and be a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, the, it's not to me to decide who's a good Catholic or a bad Catholic or who has access to what or grace because I am not the Lord. Um, I do not know. But I just think it's, you're right, there's that spectator. But then there's also, you say the performative part of it, but the performative part, or maybe you didn't say that, maybe that's how I'm interpreting it, is not lectors and Eucharistic ministers and cantors. There's also that performativeness in the pews, like this is enough. And it's like, no, God's grace is sufficient, but this is not, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's more that we need to be able to do, like go out, like he's outside outside the walls. Look at that. (laughs) I just realized, I was like, that's the name of this. Um, (laughs) I mean, I mean. You did it. You did it. Yay. Very excited. So excited for you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so used to not having, not being on shows like this that understand. Um, I'm usually educating people on what it is <laughs> um, just to kind of, or challenging someone. Mm. Um, and so I was like, oh, wait, I have to do that here. Cause that's literally the name of your podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, I'm so excited for you. Good job. Good job. you. <laughs> Uh, you know, I I wonder, as a parent, um, I have a number of kids, and you, you get disabused of the idea of being terribly performative in the pews because you're having to, you're so fractured trying to just, just if you could, if you could just point your face that way while the priest is talking and not turn around and face the people behind. That would be great. If you could kneel at the right time, that would be really helpful to me as a parent. I would, I would feel much better about my own ability to raise you in the faith. If you would, uh, you know, say the right words, even if you, you know, you don't have to sing all the words, just, you know, maybe just the mass parts, just, just, just sing the mass parts. That, that'd be really helpful. Yes. And I have come to believe that there's that prayer at the beginning of the Mass. May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands uh, for the praise and glory. And then the priest r- returns and says, um, your your sacrifice and ours, right? Or I guess we say, your sacrifice yes. and ours be acceptable. Uh, and sometimes, as a parent, my sacrifice is just be being in the pew. <laughs> And I'm not going to be able to to have undivided attention on the mass. And you know what? Uh, that is still a sacrifice worth giving, mm-hmm. and it's still performing the right actions, even if half of the mass is spent snapping my fingers and shushing somewhere. Yes. Uh, but I, I think that there is this importance for us to realize. Of course, God uses parenthood to humble us in a number of ways. Uh, that 
it's not about how good we look doing the mass and that the mass is not the totality of our experience of the sacramental life. Amen. The mass is there to nourish us. And then of course, the very last thing we hear at the mass is the mass is ended, go out to love and serve your neighbor, right? The mass is the source and the summit. It's the thing to which we aspire, but it's also the thing that empowers us to go out and do the rest. Yes. And if the mass and donut hour is our only experience of Catholicism, we are profoundly impoverished. Yes. But donuts are delicious. Um, they are. And they're important. Clear about that? Okay. Thank you. Um, but also when you were talking about looking good doing the mass and I was like, it's so funny because if you're worried about looking good during the mass, like the people who are looking at you are also not paying attention to the mass. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Like it's a yep. vicious cycle. Just, just worry about yourself, you and Jesus, mm-hmm. and then do more good work outside the walls. Yeah. Right. Got you. <laughs> so um, what was the thing that introduced you to the, the work of the church on the outside? Obviously, you going to Catholic schools, you went to Mass every week, you talked about that. What was the thing that captured your attention about the active ministry of the church outside of the Mass? Well, um, something I've shared, I've shared, I think I've shared in my book and I've shared other places before where I, I knew that the church stood for like doing, going out in the world and doing work um like charity and all these things and i actually growing up i had to rely on the charity of the church in various forms right to get what i needed um and things like that so i always knew that was an option and it started as a way is giving back right how can i serve the church that serves me before before they knew they were going to get anything out of me right <laughs> when i yeah. was a kid you know um they were serving my family and it started, that's what that work like outside of the mass was. And not necessarily, I wasn't thinking I'm going to give back. I was like, Hey, they, they do volunteer stuff. They do all kinds of stuff and I'm going to get involved in this way. Um, and so that's kind of what happened, but also growing up in my church, like, you know, that 80, 20 rule, it applies across, yeah. um, no matter what your denomination is, right? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And my family was part of the 20% of the people and we all did our share. And I didn't want to lose that part of being active in my faith or being active in the world as someone who's being Christ in the world. Um, and so that's kind of how I started doing that, like going outside, outside of just attending church. It was, it's always been more to me. It's always been more than that that that's the bare minimum it's listen i grew up pentecostal we went to church for almost four hours like listen to me when i tell you mass was a long time i mean it was it was service was a long time it mm-hmm. was as long as it was like how long is it until until <laughs> so, so i'm just saying so i was like that's what hour a week looks real great but it's literally the least i can do and so yeah. that's kind of where i that's where I got the call to do more work outside the church. And it's when I'm growing up, we were, we were saved. Um, that's what yep. we were, we were well, you know, you grew up Protestant. And oh, yeah. it was one of those things where it was always ingrained in us that if you have to tell people you're saved, you're doing it wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. If you have to tell people, so that was always my thing. Like people should know that I'm saved. 
um, like, you know, saved. Now I don't say that. Now those words come out of my mouth. I'm like, oh my gosh, I used to actually say that. Like, did you know, like, but, um, and so that, that's always been, that's always been the case for me. Not that I've been, I mean, I definitely fall short and there's definitely been mm-hmm. some stumbling, but that's, it's been my foundation for a long time. Yeah. We're talking with Marcia Lane McGee. She is the host of Plaid Skirts and Basic Black Podcast. She's also the co-author of Fat Luther Slim Pickings, a Black Catholic Celebration of Faith, Tradition, and Diversity. It's available on Ave Maria Press. Marcia, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Marcia Lane McGee, or you want to go back and listen to something again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you can't get enough of this conversation, well, I've got good news. There is more to this conversation. There's always more. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we like to give them a little extra. A couple extra questions with a guest, a deeper dive into the topic. This week, we spend some time talking about Marcia's uh, conversion into the church and uh, a little bit more in depth about her story. You're not going to want to miss it. You can find it over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link there in the top menu bar. There you can look through some older extra segments that are available now to the to general public, and you can consider whether or not that's a community you want to be a part of. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, by linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, original language, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. For just as the body is one and has many members— And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the organs in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, There are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body which we think less honorable, we invest with greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior part, that there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. That reading again comes from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 12. And there's two specific things that Paul is addressing here. The first is the person who feels inferior and doesn't feel as though they have a place. And Paul says, most definitively, not only do you have a place, but your place is essential. We can't just have uh, the eye. They can't just have the seeing, can't just have the hearing, can't just have the smelling. If we were all the same and all operated in the same way, where would the, the fullness of the body be? But he also goes and approaches the other side for those who think that because others are not like me, they don't belong. So he's addressing both sides of the equation here and saying that that the diversity of the body is essential to the functioning of the body. And he does this in terms of spiritual gifts, but this relates not only to those spiritual gifts, but also to the fullness of, of our human experience as members of the body of Christ. And it's really interesting to me because in this, he's also talking about the need to bear one another's burdens, that we are caring for one another in this, and that if one person is suffering, the whole body needs to recognize that and feel the suffering, just as if someone's sick, the whole body puts its attention on getting well. The same is true for the body of Christ. When we see members of our body, who are uh, ostracized, who are in pain, who feel alone. This is our responsibility at that moment as members of the body of Christ to go to them in their, in their place, to meet them where they are, and to bear their burdens. And this whole passage from Paul is directly correlative to what Marcia was talking about earlier with regards to uh, equality versus equity, there's not the need for sameness. There is the need for getting everyone what they need. For instance, you would not put glasses on an ear. You wouldn't put in a hearing aid in an eye. Uh, each part of the body has specific needs that need to be addressed to that part of the body. And we can't treat everyone as if there is a homogeny to uh, the human experience of the faith. We have to meet the person where they are to, to discern what they need, and to be Christ to them in that place of need. Our reading from Church History is going to expound on this idea. It's a sermon from Blessed Isaac of Stella. Why, brothers, are we so little concerned to seek one another's well-being, so that where we see a greater need, we might show a greater readiness to help and carry one another's burdens? For this is what the blessed Apostle Paul urges us to do in the words, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And also, support each other in charity. For this, surely, is the law of Christ. Why can I not patiently bear the weaknesses I see in my brother, which, either out of necessity or because of physical or moral weakness, cannot be corrected? And why can I not instead generously offer him consolation? As it is written, 
Their children shall be carried on their shoulders and consoled upon their knees. Is it because I lack that virtue which suffers all things, is patient enough to bear all, and generous enough to love? This is indeed the law of Christ, who truly bore our weaknesses in his passion and carried our sorrows out of pity, loving those he carried and carrying those he loved. Whoever attacks a brother in need or plots against him in his weakness of whatever sort surely fulfills the devil's law and subjects himself to it. Let us then be compassionate toward one another, loving all our brothers, bearing one another's weaknesses, yet ridding ourselves of our sins. The more any way of life sincerely strives for the love of God and the love of our neighbor for God's sake, the more acceptable it is to God no matter what be its observances or external form. For charity is the reason why anything should be done or left undone, changed or left unchanged. It is the initial principle and the end to which all things should be directed. Whatever is honestly done out of love and in accordance with love can never be blameworthy. May he then deign to grant us this love, for without it, we cannot please him, and without him, we can do absolutely nothing. God, who lives and reigns forever. Amen. That reading again comes from a sermon by Blessed Isaac of Stella. Everything comes down to this love. 1 John 4, we read, For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The very first fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians is uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, right? Um, We, as disciples of Jesus Christ, just by the very virtue of having the Spirit of God within us from our baptism, the very first expression of that, the very first fruit of that, is that we have divine charity. We have the love of God, and we express that love to others. And this is, of course, a fruit of the Spirit, but it's also a virtue. It's a thing that we have to exercise and strengthen and build up to recognize the needs of our brothers and sisters to put ourselves outside of ourselves, and to, as Thomas Aquinas defines love, to will the good of the other. Not merely to have affectionate thoughts towards everyone or to have warm, fuzzy feelings, but to actively will the good of those who are in front of us, to give them the things that they need, to provide for them, to rejoice when they rejoice, to mourn when they mourn, so that we may be together the body of Christ. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link to learn more. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On thread, the handle is at StepOutsideTheWalls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.